Welcome to Backroom Talk. My name is Richard Alm. I'm a chiropractic physician. Why the trunk? So you have Brett Contreras. He's the glute guy. You have James. He's the mixed modal guy. And you have Dick Olm. He's the trunk guy. Why, why, why the trunk, man? Well, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's going to be the foundation for anything. So any movement that you do, your trunk literally stabilizes first. Butt back, chest up. Find your hamstrings. These are all potentially good cues, but if left unchecked, the athlete's going to learn to stabilize by turning the posterior chain on. To listen to more Backroom Talk, be sure to subscribe. Learn to design personalized programs with the OPEX system of coaching by heading to opexfit.com. All right, Rich, welcome, man. We're, uh, I think, gosh, we're eight months late. We were supposed to do this. <laughs> we're supposed to do a live course here at OPEX course, back in, yeah. what was that, April? I think it was 1998 or something. It was <laughs> felt like 20 years ago, but yeah, we yeah, were yeah. supposed to do April, which I think, yeah, I think the whole universe shut down. We, we can't talk about that. Yep. Yeah, we can't talk it about it. It was literally like something happened a week back in April. Yeah. <laughs> so we were supposed to do a cool course that hopefully we'll do some other time yeah, on yeah. training trunk stability. So and that was going to be a podcast and some videos and stuff. But anyway, thanks for bringing me in. Good to be here. You're here. Who, yep. who are you and, and what do you do, man? Oh, um, my name's Richard Alm. I'm a chiropractic physician in Columbus, Ohio, uh, and I have a, another company called Athlete Enhancement, which is kind of an education platform that sort of takes the stuff that I've learned from the medical field and the rehab world and then applies it uh, to the performance space. And then also my background's in strength training, and there's a lot of things that are they're very applicable to the medical profession. So I sort of you do what I'd call intellectual arbitrage, like take information that's good from one and then apply it to another one, sort of back and forth. But so I was in town actually here teaching a class on treating the lumbar spine, which is sort of like the medical side of the other one or the other side of the same coin, which is um, was going to be training the lumbar spine or training trunk stability. So, but yeah. Cool, man. How, how long have you been doing this thing? Um, I've been in the, I, I've opened my office up in 2011. So I've been a physician, uh, since then I was, a an, an athlete and a strength coach, um, all the way back into the mid nineties is when I got into the fitness world. Um, and so from that, I got pretty good access to what I would say are, are like front row access to like Charles Poliquin, which I know, I think James has um, at least followed his stuff. Louis Simmons and some other really, really big names. And they, like in the mid 90s, I just saw this really high end version of strength training and just got hooked on it. So I loved the performance aspect of programming and, and the human body and just got more and more interested in that. And that sort of pushed me into the medical field because I kept wanting to dig down. Uh, and identify what I call the why behind the what. And that is like, well, why is someone's pelvis shifting to the left when they squat? Or why is this athlete's right shoulder in a bad position with a snatch, whereas their left one's fine? Or why does this athlete only incline bench 60% of their flat bench and the other ones are up in, you know, 70s and 80s? And so at the time, we didn't have the internet the way it is. And so I decided to go into school to study anatomy and mechanics and all that kind of stuff to, to figure these things out. And one of the topics that actually drove me into the medical profession is what we were going to talk about today, which is trunk stability. And I never really knew how the core, so to speak, actually worked. And so I had to sort of dig in and read all kinds of books and do all that sort of stuff. So that's sort of been 
like a a passion project literally for two decades now just understanding that and how is it applicable in the rehab space and then how is it applicable in a way that's um actually useful in the performance space because you can go too crazy and get way too detailed and then you know you talk to a trainer or a strength coach and they can't do anything with that information how do you make it where like tomorrow we can actually change the way that we're programming or change the way that we're cueing or whatever what was it like to go from having that experience as a strength coach, being out in the trenches, and then going back to school? Because typically, it's the other way around. <laughs> um, I am uh, a hard worker, so I'm not uh, super amazing at school. So to do well in school, I had to study a lot. And so that was tough because I was out. I mean, I hadn't taken a test in 10 years. And when you go back into school, the first year is basically a weed-out year. They're trying to just flunk everybody out to push them. Um, just to push them out of the program. And I just had to study a ton. But what got me through it is uh, I, I loved what I was studying. So, I mean, I got to literally go into a cadaver lab and do an a, like dissection for hundreds of hours, literally. So they just let me, normally you would do about 100 hours, and I did north of 1,500 hours of just dissection so that I could really understand the body and mechanics and all that kind of stuff. So I loved it. But it was a ton, a ton of just studying and um, and work, but it was exciting because I liked the material. I don't know why Dexter came to my mind when you're like, yeah, man, I just got to cut people up all day. <laughs> it's actually not, it, it's, it's funny, it's not that gross once you've sort of gotten through the first part of the process, which is, I don't need to get into, I don't want to get into the details. You can if you want okay. to. So I've, once, I've done my fair share of, once of you cadaver get the, Once you get the skin off, it just looks like a model and you just kind of go through it and, and whatever, but for me, uh, I think that having a sound understanding of anatomy and mechanics is really important if you want to understand movement selection and, and, and technique and all that kind of stuff. And so going in there and just just time after time after time studying the exact, like what exactly does the shoulder look like? What exactly does the rotator cuff um, look like? And the, the better that picture is in somebody's head, the better they understand the mechanics, the better they're going to understand the why behind the what if we're talking about you know, a snatch, you know, why, you know, why, why this is better than this or whatever. Was there anything that you uncovered in that period where you looked back on your experience and you were like, I was a fucking idiot. Like, why did I ever do it this way? Oh, what we're talking about today. Yeah. So okay. how I used to brace for lifting absolutely um, produced a lot of, uh, a lot of tissue damage, we'll say. So I have a nice high functioning torso now, but I was... Uh, I got to train at this really cool group um, at Ashland University, and the coach is a four-time Olympian. He's one that worked with Charles Poliquin for like 30 years, and, and he's the reason I was able to meet a lot of these great strength coaches. Well, this is a dude that, you know, when he was an athlete, he's a four-time Olympian, and he was 285 running a 4.42 at a combine. So he's 6'4", 285 pounds, like doing doubles in the clean at 440 and can run a, literally faster than the average wide receiver. So I'm trying to keep up with this Lamborghini in my little, like, Honda Accord engine. And so I had to work super hard because we had, well, my wife was on the Olympic team, and then we had two, Kibway and AG, and then Judd. So I was there with four Olympians, and, you know, I have the, the desire and the work effort of, of an Olympian, but not the, not the genetics. And I just wrecked my my body trying to keep up with that it was fun I would do it a, a hundred times over and over again but when I got into school and I was like studying the stuff the trunk stability one um, that we'll definitely get into with like different types of stabilizing strategies um, the one that I use used 
quite effectively back then, but it has consequences is what I call an extension compression stabilizing strategy, which we can dig into that a little bit later on. And that's that's what beat my back up. Why, why the trunk? So you have Brett Contreras, he's the glute guy. You have James, he's the mixed modal guy. And you have <laughs> Dick Ulm, he's the trunk guy. Why, why, why the trunk, man? Well, I mean, for me, it's it, it's it's going to be the foundation for anything. So any movement that you do, your trunk literally stabilizes first. So if you want to lift your arm up, your brain will activate your trunk stabilizers before it turns on any muscle that moves. So if there's any breakdown in how you stabilize, the quality of that, right, if there's any breakdown in that, you will have movement dysfunction, unresolvable movement dysfunction. You can stretch your lats all you want. If they're using, if your brain is using the lats to stabilize your lumbar spine, they will always get tight again. And if you're good at being able to assess that and, and train and, and treat and cue a really good trunk stabilizing strategy, it opens up all of their movements. So there's a lot of times you guys have seen in, in the gym, someone, uh, a good one is uh, calves, right? So they stretch their calves every single day they come in, they're doing a squatting movement. Uh, you know, they use the compression bands or foam rolling, all that stuff. And oh yeah, my dorsiflexion's open back up. Well then they squat and they come back in the next day. Do they need to stretch their calves again? Absolutely, because they're back right where they were. So unless you're doing, you know, 45 minutes of stretching every single day constantly, you'll get small improvements in your range of motion. But the moment you stop that, if that, limits in mobility is being driven by instability of your trunk, the moment you stop doing that chronic stretching, all of that stuff will just tighten back up again, right? Because the tightness, to, to me, tightness is more often an indication of dysfunction than a creator of one. So tightness is always a symptom. It's never like, you know, your hamstrings don't just tighten up for no reason, there's always a reason, and usually you can tie it into trunk stability. Give us a give us a really specific example of your calves are tight. You're going to the gym. You're stretching them every day. Going upstream, what's happen? What could be happening in the trunk causing tight calves? So what typically happens? It it's ties back into that extension, compression, stabilizing strategy, which I'll take a second to sort of explain. Um, it is exactly what I you know the the name I actually. The pattern, uh, Vladimir Yanda, I don't know if you're, you guys have heard. Okay, so Yanda is a really brilliant neurologist um, from the Czech Republic. Uh, he had a, a pattern called lower cross syndrome, and that's where the, the spinal extensors and the hip flexors are tight, and the glutes and the abdominal wall are going to be inhibited. And he identified that as like a pattern that, that, that happens over time. So in, in older patients, he would see this consistent pattern, right? And then uh, one of his uh, protégés, his name is Pavel Kolaj, who actually started a group that I teach for called Dynamic Neuromuscular Stabilization. Um, and I actually have a whole line of courses for them, for specifically for strength coaches and trainers. Um, he realized that those, that those muscle patterns actually came from the muscles that were active at birth tend to be more hyperactive than the ones that we activate later in development. So we don't need to go that far into the rabbit hole with that, but the muscles that trainers are consistently stretching are muscles that are active at birth, right? So people are consistently, you know, stretching their hip flexors or having to loosen their back up, right? And the, the muscles that they consistently are trying to activate, so they're trying to activate their glutes, their foot intrinsics, their abdominal wall, right? Deep neck flexors, lower traps, serratus anterior, these are all muscles that activate later in development. So 
to avoid the neurology, you just need to know that some muscles have a propensity to be super tight, others have a propensity to get inhibited, and that causes problems. Well, that pattern, that lower cross syndrome pattern, I sort of renamed it as an extension compression stabilizing strategy so that people can appreciate the actual forces that are impacting the spine, okay? So when you have, when you're training, like with what I'll call a posterior chain dominant pattern, that's, that's basically what it is, and we can talk about how the profession tends to overtrain the posterior chain. When you have your back is super, super tight, that whole posterior chain becomes tight as well. Okay, so your spinal extensors will get really, really tight, even the hamstrings and oftentimes the calves. So someone that has Achilles pain, stubborn Achilles pain with double unders, they can do all the voodoo flossing that they want, but they still struggle with it. Oftentimes it's because they're using that extension compression stabilizing strategy and the brain is over recruiting the calves. So you can foam roll, dry needle, whatever you want to the calves until you correct the trunk stabilizing strategy issue. It will just keep coming back. How would you, like let's say you're a coach in the gym, how would you know that that is what's going on with your client? So the, the movement test for it that we'll show, that I'll show in some of my classes, you have to kind of watch um, how overactive is the posterior chain. You can look at posture sort of um, and sort of see it. But if you have somebody, the easiest one, if you have them get in like a hang clean position and you have them tilt their pelvis forward, and then when they tilt their pelvis backward, the people with this problem, it's called ratcheting. They'll like basically it shakes as they go backwards. Well, that's because of this, this muscular imbalance. The posterior chain is, is so cranked on, it struggles to maintain activity and then lengthen. So go through that, that eccentric activation. It's unable to do that, so it sort of ratchets when you see that. If you see somebody that has that ratcheting, which is very prevalent in, in the, the sport that, that we all work with, um, they're going to have problems up and down the chain. Now, as we all know, anybody that's doing this kind of competitive mixed modal stuff probably does, you know, 45 minutes of warming up because they have to. The better you actually stabilize your trunk, the better job you do of programming it um, and improving the strategy, the less stretching you have to do because the, the neurological balance is there. So the, go ahead. So, sorry, what it, what, so the assessment looks like, so there's no specific assessment. You're saying like it's you may notice it no, no, in no, certain you, the, movements. The, the specific assessment is you have them stand in a hang clean position, cross their hands right here, tilt their pelvis forward, and then have them tilt their pelvis all the way backwards. If you have a really high functioning um, trunk stability pattern, you can posteriorly tilt that pelvis super fast with zero shaking. Most athletes that are doing this, you know, predominantly sagittal plane, bilateral hip hinging stuff, right? There's their posterior chain and their sagittal plane muscles are hyperdeveloped. And right, if you watch any of, you know, if you watch anybody like the games or whatever, a lot of them, the pelvis is cranked way forward, right? You can see these humongous spinal extensors. And when they um, are doing the movements, you can watch the spine go into this hyperextension pattern. That's another, it's not a specific test, but when you're watching somebody move, you know, if they're set, let's say that they're doing like a, a, a deadlift and they're set and the moment that they go to set or the moment they start to accept that load, their back just wins and cranks them into extension. It's because they're unable to generate enough stability in the front, like intra-abdominal pressure, abdominal wall activation, to balance out 
the powerful posterior chain. Okay, so that, that causes all kinds of problems. We could do a whole podcast just on that. But the struggle is that it's very valuable to have a strong posterior chain. But if you train it so much and emphasize it so much that it becomes overactive, that becomes a problem. These are the athletes that um, have the, you know, the, the postural distortion, and they're, they end up beating up the passive tissues of their spine, so the facets in the back, even there's a higher compression load on the discs, so you can get all these goofy symptoms like you know tons of trigger points in your glutes, which I think anyone that's done a lot of squatting or whatever has felt that. That's usually coming from the spine. And that can be driven by that extension compression stabilizing strategy. Because it's just a good quick test. Cause yeah, yeah. Some of the struggle um, with, with what I do is, is, is I have a high level of specificity for what I'm looking for and how the core stabilizes. But as assessing that, like, it's, its applicability in a, in a training thing. Like, let's say that they have an OPEX gym and they're going through and like you guys are all about highly specific programming which is which is fantastic but you can get over detailed in that so there has to be a quick way to be able to assess that so that test um, along with a couple other ones that I show in the courses is just an easy fast way to sort of check that out because it can't be you know a 20 minute assessment or something like that because they want to go in and it needs to go in the bucket is this a problem or not if it's not a problem move on to the next test if it is a problem then you need to be programming to correct it Given that we're going to spend the next, you know, hour talking about trunk stability, I think it would be great to just peel it back and actually get a definition of what trunk stability means and why it's important. Can I add something before you go into that? Can you talk about what the trunk is? Oh, yeah. Let's, let's, let's <laughs> go then, back. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, the, the trunk is basically your torso. And I, I just say trunk because it's the whole spine, like, you know, the... The cervical spine, thoracic spine, rib cage, all of it. And it's just like a, a catch-all term. But most of the time when we're talking about trunk stability or core stability, we're really talking about the lumbar spine. Okay? And that is basically a container, the stiffness of which we can control. Right? So when we think of trunk stability, we're, we're thinking about the abdominal wall. I don't know how far... I guess I can rifle through some of those. So, you know, with the abdominal wall, you want to think of it like a corset that wraps around the, the lower torso. Okay, it attaches to the ribs, the pelvis, um, a thing in the front called your linea alba, and then all the way in the back on the spine. And then in the back, you also have that posterior chain. So you have your spinal extensors, your lats, the, the QL, all that kind of stuff sitting back there. Well, they all work together like a corset to control the stiffness of the spine. And stiffness is basically um, a, a more specific term for its willingness to bend, how hard you have to work to bend it. And when we're doing something like a, a deadlift or a clean, we want maximal spinal stiffness. We don't want someone's back to bend you know, against the force of gravity. We want it to be able to maintain its position. So that's stiffness. On the other side of the spectrum, is going to be um, mobility, right? And when we're talking about um, st excuse me, stability, when we're talking about this, when they have to move a lot, the word stability sort of breaks down. Because if you're thinking about it from an engineering standpoint, an object is either stable or not stable by how easy it is to move from its position. Well, if I'm doing a deadlift, I don't want my spine to move. But if I'm throwing a baseball 100 miles an hour, I need my spine to move. So you need to be able to maintain a stable trunk 
while you're still moving. So the word stability kind of breaks down there. So really what we should be saying is more motor control. Are you able to control the positioning better than lock it in place? And a lot of the stuff that, that, is, that, that we do in the, the training space in the gym is what I call static stability. And that is just lock it down, don't let it move it. But then you have dynamic stability, which is are you able to maintain good positioning and go through a full array of movement? Like, like you know, a Cirque du Soleil performer certainly needs a stable spine, but they can't lock their spine in place and still do all the stuff that they need. So the word stability is really more about motor control. Um, than about preventing movement, okay? So back to the, 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 the torso, we have the abdominal corset that wraps around the abdomen. On the top, you have a muscle called the diaphragm, and on the bottom, you have the pelvic floor. They essentially create this cool container, and this is the only place in the body that we have this. We're able to use muscle tension to stabilize the spine, and then also another force called intra-abdominal pressure, which is pressure inside the abdomen. And it really is about all about training the athletes to be able to properly develop intra-abdominal pressure, uh, regulate that under different movements, which gets pretty complex if you start talking about um, you know, the, the James Fitzgerald space where their heart rate's elevated and they have to sustain. But if they're sustaining and the actual load is, is moderately high, well, now you have to stabilize and breathe at the same time. So it becomes complex, but you can use the tension in the muscle and the pressure in there to, to regulate the stiffness of the spine. So the higher the pressure in the abdomen, the stiffer the spine becomes. And, and so then you have those two forces that not all stabilizing strategies are created equal. Right? If you're not using the pressure on the abdomen, you're, you're having to over-depend on muscle activity as opposed to being able to use um, you know, coactivation or, or synchronous activation of those muscles along with the pressure in the spine or in the abdomen to generate maximum spinal stiffness if you need it. So the pelvic floor on the bottom, the diaphragm on the top, and then just that corset. That's your container right there. And then how much or how little pressure is in the abdomen is really what should be regulating the stiffness of the spine. Is that yeah, yeah. sort of okay? How do you train to increase your, your ability to have a stiff spine? So you, you can, maybe this is a good point to talk about different strategies that you can have. Um, not everybody braces the same. And what I mean by brace, I, I always say that bracing is a non-specific cue to get someone to consciously stabilize. And so one thing that I see a lot in gyms is they'll say, okay, tighten up for the, to the lift or something. Hey, you know, brace. Well, what do you mean by brace? And there's really four different strategies that you can use that I see. One of them is old school hollowing, right? So this is where you're taking the abdomen and you're drawing it in or you're pulling the belly button towards the spine. That's essentially a concentric activation of your abdominal wall. And that concentric activation increases the muscle tension in the abdominal wall. The higher the muscle tension, right, the stiffer the spine. Okay, cool. But in that case, you're not really using the posterior chain very much, and you're, and you're not really changing the, the pressure on the abdomen. So you're only using muscle tension there. The next strategy is, is kind of the opposite, which is going to be that extension compression stabilizing strategy. This one, because 
of our neurological propensity to crank those on anyways um, is super common in the weight room. And that is where you're, you basically crank on your posterior chain and you extend and compress the spine to generate stiffness, okay? That's very common. Then the other one is just going to be what I'll call tensing, and that's where you're just tensing everything up. You know, you got your abs on, you got the back on, and you are using all of the muscles around the torso, but you may or may not be using the pressure. The last strategy is the one that we all want to do, and that is you want to pressurize into a brace, okay? And if you pressurize into it, you can't increase the pressure without muscle activity. So it's impossible to have a lot of pressure in your abdomen without a lot of muscle tension. So if you just tense the muscles without pressure, you're not going to be as stiff in terms of the torso as you would be if you pressurized into that tense, right? So those are the four strategies that we see, and, and the extension, compression, stabilizing strategy is the one that is super, super common. But if you're not being clear on what you mean by bracing, then the athlete may or may not do that. So what we have to do in the, in the coaching process is just make sure that they know what you mean by bracing, and then they actually know how to do it. And it's, it's really pretty simple. You want to make sure that they're able to sort of create that intra-abdominal pressure. And what intra-abdominal pressure is, is it's an outward pushing force in the abdomen that is, that is created by the descending diaphragm. So when my diaphragm contracts, it moves closer to the pelvis. And it essentially compresses uh, all of the, the contents of the abdomen. And that's going to push it out and down, forward, and backward, but outward in all directions. The abdominal wall, then, is going to resist that force. And the more pressure you want, the more the diaphragm has to contract against the resistance of the abdominal wall. So if, if we're just kind of like sitting here, you know, our bellies are moving in and out, right? We're still regulating the pressure, but how much we actually need in this scenario is minimal. So when the diaphragm comes down, the abdominal wall just succumbs to that force and kind of controls the intra-abdominal pressure that way. Well, if we're now going to do a max deadlift, the brain knows, ooh, I need to make sure that I have a, a maximally stiff torso. So now, instead of the diaphragm contracting with minimal resistance from the abdominal wall, the diaphragm contracts, the abdominal wall then increases its activity to resist that outward pushing force. So now the diaphragm contracts even harder, and then the abdominal wall even harder, and then the intra-abdominal pressure that rises is really just the summation of the mechanical force created by the diaphragm and the surrounding torso. So the abdominal contents is really just a conduit transferring those back and forth. And the better job that we can do as coaches and medical professionals to train and teach someone how to pressurize, you'll get a, a higher functioning spine. It will still be as stiff as necessary, and you'll do it in a way that doesn't beat up the, like the passive tissues as much. So there's, there's a lot of long-term consequences to stabilizing with too much posterior chain or only you know, drawing your abdomen in. So the, the pressurizing is so important because it's, it's, it's good for longevity, it's good for the health of the spine, and it does not compromise the performance. Out of those four strategies, are any one of them preferential or is it dependent on who the person is and what they're doing? 
what do you mean by for, like like uh like you just walk through four strategies let's say a coach is listening to this thing and they're like okay yeah i get it i get it i get it now what strategy should i use or what strategy should i use with my clients the one that's the most common because of that neurological propensity i told you before is that extension compression stabilizing strategy um that's the one where like they're overusing their posterior chain this one is super common number one because of the neurological um, propensity for those back muscles to turn on. Number two, um, it's cued quite a lot in, in, in the, the lifting space. Sit back on your heels and push your knees out, butt back, chest up, find your hamstrings. These are all potentially good cues, but if left unchecked, the athlete's going to learn to stabilize by turning the posterior chain on. That's another. And that was strategy three, the overextension. No, no, that's the second one. So you have hollowing. Yep. You have that extension compression stabilizing strategy. Then you have tensing, which is like just I got it. turn those. And then you also the pressurizing. The extension compression stabilizing strategy is the one that's super common. So it, there's a neurological propensity for it. It's cued quite a lot when you're watching somebody talk. You also have that the vast majority of movements in the weight room tend to be sagittal plane. And the more you're training the sagittal plane, the posterior chain is a sagittal plane muscle chain. So if you're if you know six out of seven of your your exercises are sagittal plane stuff, you're gonna or bilateral hip hinging, you're gonna train that a lot, right? So that's another one. Then if you watch as a coach and an athlete, you can get on the internet and find all kinds of great athletes doing amazing things w with that overactive posterior chain. So you're like, oh well if he does it, well I want to be like that guy, so I'm gonna do it. And then even when I was an athlete, you, you're kind of competing against all these other um, people across the country and now across the world, and you're watching to see what they're doing. So much of the tradition of strength training is got to have a strong posterior chain, got to have a strong posterior chain, got to have a strong posterior chain. So you're like trying to keep up with, with the Joneses, so to speak, and so you end up doing that. And then the last one is that it actually does work. Like I'm not telling you that you can't generate a crap ton of spinal stiffness you know, with that extension, compression, stabilizing strategy, but it has consequences, right? And I, and, I, and I know that you and I are, we're all on the same page with longevity being an important thing. Well, you know, when you're looking at some of these, these power lifters that use this, they're getting their hips replaced in their 40s, right? They're getting tons of disc injuries, tons of um, spinal canal stenosis and all this stuff that's secondary fr from that strategy. Right? So what coaches want to do is in every scenario, they need to teach their athletes to pressurize into a brace. doesn't matter what you're doing. So if you're doing a deadlift or you're doing you know, kettlebell snatching or, or kicking a soccer ball, they need to kind of understand how to do that. And the ultimate goal is something that James and I have talked about, but it's what I call reactive stability. So in the weight room, you can do, it, it's, it's a little different than a normal sport because you can do conscious stabilizing. Like, you know, if you're going to go do a squat, you know you have to actively brace in order to do that squat. Okay, that's cool. It's easy to do there. But if you're a tennis player, right, and you're competing against somebody else, you can't, if you're in the final of the Wimbledon, you can't think, okay, i got to brace and then, and then go. It needs to be reactive. James talks about this all the time in, in having the right load prescribed and, and the right exercises, but it needs to be taught in the beginning that, oh, this is what we mean by brace, and if you're going to do anything, whether it's a, like a, a kettlebell swing is a great example, where it's a ballistic movement from a maximum brace, stiffness, to fully relaxed 
relax so that you can breathe. They have to know how to do it. And then over, rep over time, with repetition, they'll actually be able to do this reactively. And that's ultimately what a high-functioning trunk is able to do. You don't have to, you know, every time I'm going to go get my coffee or something and you're bracing. That's just silly. But if we don't teach them the mechanics of it in the beginning, how to do it, they'll never actually get there. So it makes a ton of sense that like the tensioning and pressurizing is preferable for longevity. But let's, um, let's consider like an athlete that's competing in a sport. Maybe it's competitive functional fitness, mixed modal CrossFit, whatever you want to call it, or powerlifting. Is there any advantage for them being in that extension compression strategy compared to that tension and uh, pressurizing? Great question. So, and you went straight to the sport where you kind of need to do it. So in powerlifting, as you know, that's deadlift, squat, and, and the bench press. Now, there, there are three different movements. In the bench press, it is impossible to bench press well without using an elevated rib cage, squeeze the shoulder blades back, wide stance, because what you're doing essentially there, well, I don't know how far you want me to go into this, but you're one, you're just shortening how far you're moving. So you're literally reducing the work, right? Force times distance, you're reducing. It'd be like me racing someone in the 100, and I'm going to start on the 50. They have to start all the way back on the 100 meter, you know, on the, on the zero, right? So I, I have a much better chance of winning because I'm only running half the distance. So for that, you can't keep the ribs down and actually do this. The other thing that's kind of cool in, in the, the bench press is your pecs go from your, your humerus down here and they go down to the ribs, they go to the sternum, and then they, they go across to the, the collarbone. Well, if I'm flat and I'm doing a press, I'm only using a portion of those muscles to do horizontal adduction, which is this motion right here. If I arch my back, I'm now pulling the, the bar path in line with my pecs, and interestingly, also my lats. So you guys have probably heard people say, oh, you have to use your lats in the bench press. Well, the lats do this. It makes no sense if, if you're doing a bench press unless you bring your torso up and now I can actually use my lats and my back a little bit to, to actually move that barbell. So there's so many biomechanical advantages to that strategy in the bench press that you could never match it with, you know, this ideal stabilizing strategy that I'm talking about. Now, in the, in the deadlift and the, and the back squat, you absolutely can, uh, and you can get with proper training, you can get very close to, but I don't think that you can match the stiffness that you can get with that extension compression stabilizing strategy. And, and this is, there's only a few cases where you want to allow it, because you have to know what's, I mean, there's a risk involved. There's a risk, and you have to know what's going on. They're essentially taking their back and smashing the spine together to create that stiffness. That's incredibly powerful. Now, the consequences are all kinds of injuries down the road. Um, and ironically, it also increases the likelihood of getting a butt wink in a squat. So then you can injure the disc more and all that kind of stuff. But in powerlifting, where, I mean, they are literally putting out 100% of what they're capable, they need to be able to do that. So I'm, I would never say, like, oh, no, this ideal strategy, you can match the stiffness there. But that's a very small network of people. And I would say it, it, it should be powerlifters that are actually making money doing this. Um, but in everybody else, if you're training a soccer player, a mixed modal athlete, or, or stuff like that, you can absolutely get really, really, really um, high amounts of trunk stiffness with this, you know, pressurizing strategy. But the, the thing that makes it challenging is you have to, A, know how to teach it, 
right? And then B, it actually takes time where you have to have specific programming to strengthen the resilience of that pattern. So again, back to the neurological propensity for the back to crank on, you actually have to work on what I call their functional capacity, which is the range within which they can actually stabilize correctly. And if you ask an athlete to move really, really fast, move a whole lot of weight, so a lot of load, or move for a long period of time, because of the neurological propensity, the back will slowly turn on over time. So if you were, if, if you've probably done um, like a hundred kettlebell swing, unbroken kettlebell swings, I'm assuming, or 50 or whatever, if you put yourself in that space and you're going through in the beginning, you might be like, oh yeah, I'm able to keep the ribs down and all that kind of stuff. But over time, you'll notice you start shifting back on your heels and your ribs start coming up and the, the, the pelvis starts going forward. And you know, your last 20, 30 reps, you're not using the same strategy. It's because of the fragility of that, that ideal strategy that you have to actually train over time. So that's what makes it so challenging to get someone to do this at these high level um, you know, expression, so to speak, to use a term you guys use all the time. Um, so knowing that, like, okay, I'm identifying a problem here with, you know, what I call trunk stability endurance. Well, we have to work on that then. They need to be able to do this strategy and maintain it for 20 minutes, right? You can't maintain a super brace for 20 minutes, so how do you regulate that? There needs to be programming in there for that. Or, you know, an Olympic weightlifter, they don't care about their trunk stability endurance, they care about their trunk stability power, right? or speed, right? There's a lot of things that go into this, and if you're not programming for that, then they're when the, by the time they get to that maximum stiffness event, they're just gonna have to crank their back on. So that that's what makes it a little bit challenging, because it, it takes some patience and some knowledge um, and some programming to actually get someone to a point where they can stabilize well at very, very high levels of expression. This is kind of a, an unfair question, putting you on the spot a little bit, but can you give us, um, can you give us a few examples of how you would program trunk stability, strength versus power versus endurance versus speed. Like what would that actually look like? Well, I mean, it, it really just comes down to the, the time domain, right? So if you are, you can either test for these things where you might watch an athlete do 30 kettlebell swings with say they're super strong, you need to have them do it with a 40 kilo kettlebell, and you watch where they start to break down, and then you can actually sort of measure that on camera, they're losing it right here. Or you can watch them, like EMOMs are great in Olympic weightlifting. You can just increase like five kilos until you find the point where they can no longer maintain ribs down, pressure in the abdomen, neutral spine. They'll, they'll just automatically fall on it. it. It's like literally a barrier, and you go over that you know, functional threshold, and bang, that extension, compression, stabilized strategy kicks on. So when you see those, you can, you can program differently. The other one you can do is just think about it. Like, okay, if I'm working with an Olympic weightlifter, do I really care how long they can hold the side bridge for? Probably not, because when they're coming through, the weakest point in the movement is right at the knees. Well, they're only going to be there for a millisecond, fractions of a second, but they have to have a crap ton of stability and stiffness there. So for that athlete, I need to be doing more things like, you know, let's say that I have them in like a triple flexion position, you know, feet against the wall, and instead of holding, you know, a kettlebell that they're going to just do some breathing in that position for a minute, they're holding a really heavy kettlebell and they're holding it for five seconds. So the, the trunk stiffness requirement is very, very high there. So you can change 
what you're doing with the with the with the, the trunk stability programming to match the needs of the athlete. The other one that you can do to train this pattern is simply how you're cueing and how you're programming. So if you're only doing bilateral hip hinging stuff with the athlete, the likelihood is they're going to crank on their back. If you're getting out of the sagittal plane and starting to do more triplanar movements, right, or you're doing more unilateral movements so that they're able to actually move and function a little bit better, well, now you can just with the programming, just with the cueing, you can get them to actually increase their functional capacity for that pattern. So it's the cueing and then also actual trunk stability exercises that you can do, right? Awesome. Yeah, I think um, just just to give people context, when you say um, getting out of the sagittal plane, give us some, some examples of exercises in the sagittal plane and some other recommendations that would still hit the, the needs of why that person's doing those exercise, exercises with getting out of the sagittal plane. Sure. So you, you can, the sagittal plane, just rem, rem, uh, remind everybody, so the sagittal plane is like all your flexion and extension movements, okay? Then the coronal plane is going to be sort of your lateral flexion movements, and then the transverse plane is your, is your sort of rotational movements. If you go in the weight room, most of the big movements that we do are sagittal plane stuff. So we're going to do kettlebell swings. That's obviously just, you know, flexion extension of the hips. Um, back squatting, right? All of those are just stuck in the sagittal plane. Snatches, cleans, all that kind of stuff. Thrusters, whatever. Um, if you have that and then you're doing it with a bilateral movement where both the legs and the arms are locked into place, what you're doing there is you're minimizing what's called your degrees of freedom. And that essentially is the potential directions that the body can move. Well, if I'm holding a barbell and I'm doing an RDL, I've basically restricted the movements almost exclusively into the sagittal plane. And, the, and if you were to just take one hand off the barbell, now you're able to do it completely differently because now you're allowing for, in this case, it's, it's rotation. And if you programming in ways where they only can be in the sagittal plane, that's going to be a problem. If you do more unilateral stuff, right, or other movements I'll talk about in a second that are overtly outside of the sagittal plane, then you're able to train a lot of these other muscles and these movements. And for what we're trying to do, to have someone be maximally functional, you need to be able to move and control in all three planes. It's just that a lot of the stuff in the sport is all sagittal plane stuff. So, we'll, heck, let's just, we'll do cleans first, and then we'll do back squats, and then we'll do some good mornings, and we'll finish with, you know, some, uh, you know, hollow rocks and hyperextensions, and there's my program that day. Okay, that was, you know all posterior chain basically other than the hollow rocks i don't know man i've seen like some dumbbell snatches where i've seen some transverse plane being used yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but even it's actually the the, the dumbbell snatch is a is, is kind of a cool test if you want to feel what it feels like to be locked in the sagittal plane um take it you know take a kettlebell let's say like a 53 pound kettlebell put it overhead single arm and squat all the way down and what you'll notice is you'll have these micro movements where your pelvis will shift away from the bell so that's actually coronal plane linear movement i'm just translating away to allow myself to do the movement i'm going to laterally flex away a little bit that's again that's rotational movement but it's in the coronal plane then i'm going to rotate towards the bell now that's transverse plane and all of those things allows me to squat all the way down and then come all the way back up now take the same movement but take a barbell and put it over your head like this and 
instantly you get stuck in the sagittal plane and you'll see how much harder it is. And all that is, is that's a thing I do at one of my courses to show people how restrictive you can be and how difficult it is to move when you have limited degrees of freedom. Okay, so back to your question about getting out of the sagittal plane. Uh, one movement that's very, very sagittal plane um, is toes to bar, right? So you can do, you can make small modifications to a toes to bar so that you're still able to train that, even metabolically. But now instead of bringing both your feet to the bar, you're taking one foot and reaching across and kicking opposite to your, your, your hands. So it's just, I call it an oblique toes to bar. So your right leg touches on the, on the left side of the bar, and then you come back down, and then you switch it over this way. That's a small change to a really, really good movement where now you're adding trunk rotation, and you're forcing the athlete to start using the obliques and getting outside of what is traditionally a strict sagittal plane movement. You can also do um, one great uh, trunk stability exercise is, is standing lateral crunches, like band resisted. So I'm here, you know, you're kind of in a sumo stance to, so the band doesn't pull you to the rig. And you can pressurize and sort of crunch this way. That's like a pure coronal plane movement that's really good at teaching the athlete how to pressurize well. And now it's nowhere near the sagittal plane. And the other one is just sort of rotation stuff. So doing like one of my favorite uh, movements is um, rotational med ball throws against the wall. So you can actually use that as a good way to train metabolics where you're getting in there and you're having to do that for, you know, a minute or something. But now you're outside of that sagittal plane instead of just doing our classic, I'm going to do Superman's, GHD sit-ups, good mornings and all that kind of stuff. You can get out of there, expose that athlete to more movements, and you'll increase their ability to sort of express control in all those movements. When you're teaching coaches how to program in all three planes of movement, how do you distribute that? Or, like, what's the best practice? Are you, like, 33, 33, 33, no, let's go? it's funny because I don't necessarily – it really depends on the athlete, number one. So if you have someone that already moves really, really well and already has the control, they don't have to spend as much time on those things. If you have an athlete that's – uh, like a golfer that spends a lot of time in the transverse plane, well, you're going to have to bias your programming for that. You know, if we're talking about a mixed modal athlete, you know, they're all just stuck in the sagittal plane anyway. So to me, it's making sure that you're getting out of the sagittal plane a little bit by maybe doing a single leg RDL, right, just to, so it's still a, a, a hip hinging movement. It's still sagittal plane, but by opening up the degrees of freedom, you allow them to stabilize differently. So you're going to um, decrease the proclivity of the back to crank on, okay? And then you can, of course, in your programming, you know, doing step-ups and lunges as opposed to doing squats, right? So squatting is great, but I think a front foot elevated step-back lunge is superior literally in every way to the back squat or the front squat to train what we need it to do. Well, if you just have them program and we're just going to use lunges instead, it's life-changing for these athletes. They don't have to warm up as much, their back feels amazing, and their squat goes up. Like, so you can change those a little bit, and then at the end of the program, what I would call the tertiary part of the program, you can actually put trunk stability exercises in there that are obviously outside of the sagittal plane. So stay away from, um, you know, maybe just a normal crunch or a normal toes-to-bar, which are great exercises, and you can keep them in there. Just make sure that you're adding in these things. And the other one that I've, I've heard James harp on all the time is you have to know why you're putting everything in the program. If you're just writing it in there because it's hard, 
right? Well, that's not that's not good. You want to go in there and say, okay, I need this athlete to you know get out of the sagittal plane for back health or for performance reasons or whatever. And so if you're asking yourself and you're looking back and saying, okay, why are all these movements in there? Then you're able to sort of pepper in movements that are outside of the sagittal plane. But it's not, I don't have like a 40% is, is ideal. Sorry, I'm going to ask one more follow-up question on that. Because I think, I think when we talk about athletes, it, it almost makes the answer easier, right? Because we're like, okay, I'm programming for this task. What if we're talking about general population? Then the, it's even more important to get out of the sagittal plane. Yeah, right? so that's, that's, that's where my question was. was it, is there a, an, an optimal split inside of your head where you're like, this person isn't training for anything. They're training for function. They're training for life. How, how often should they get out of the sagittal plane? Every day they train. So okay. I, I, don't, I don't have a percentage. I like where you're going with it, but I, I don't have a percentage. You just need to be able to look at a program and say, okay, those are the movements. There's a transverse plane movement. There's a coronal plane movement. And then, you know, there's some sagittal stuff. But, you know, they, every single day that they train, they need to get out of there. And if, you, if you're thinking about, like, how we're, we're trying to sort of express fitness, well, optimal expression of fitness is the ability to move and control in all three planes and it's kind of funny if you watch someone who's sort of like an elite crossfitter a lot of them are not very good at like other sports like if you have them play basketball which is a reactive sport right so olympic weightlifting crossfit powerlifting these are what i call initiation sports which means you initiate the movement so you have full control over that Team sports, you know, tennis, all these other things, you're not initiating it. You're reacting to that stuff. Well, you don't know if you're a mixed martial arts person, you don't know if they're going to twist you to the right or the left, but you still have to be able to sort of control or resist those things. So with everyday life, it's the same way. You're just sort of moving around, and you have to be able to move and control in all three planes. So in the programming, they need to make sure that they've got things in there that are in all of those directions. So, so that we can be maximally functional. I'm smiling because my experience of going from CrossFit to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was yes. just a nightmare for the first month. Which is amazing, right? Because you, like, when you're in really good shape for CrossFit, I, I do think that you know, if you're doing that kind of stuff, you're as fit as you can be. But it's so funny because you get into, like, into BJJ. I mean, I could go in there even you know, in, like, when I was the most fit I've ever been. I would go in there and like a purple belt girl that weighs 120 would wreck me. Like, I, you just can't do anything, and it's because that is a purely reactive sport, and that one is always in all three planes. I mean, you're never stuck in one plane. You have a lot of the, the athletes that are, are more sagittal plane in their movements. That's where you see this extension, compression, stabilizing strategy the most obvious. So former gymnast who got into CrossFit, those are the ones where it's just like, wow, that those are some big spinal erectors or, you know, their you know, ribs are up and they can't actually pressurize. It's because everything that they've done their whole career is sagittal plane. You look at a golfer, you look at a Brazilian jiu-jitsu athlete, they don't, they don't really have these patterns because they're always out of the sagittal plane. So to, to tie back into what you were asking, we need to, with our sort of general pop athletes, they need to be able to move and control in all three planes. So it's even more important for them because they don't have to be able to cycle a barbell, you know, 30 times as fast as they can. They need to be able to just like, I don't know, get out of the car and twist and pick their kid up. And those are all triplanar things. And if everything that we're doing in the weight room, just because of sort of tradition, is sagittal plane stuff, yeah, they get stronger. You can measure that in a back squat or a deadlift. 
stuff, but how they actually function in their sport, which is life, is going to be limited because you're not exposing the dose, so to speak, is not enough to create this response, which is expressing triplanar control. That's what we ultimately want. And even with a sagittal plane athlete, the better that they're able to move and control in all three planes, the less beat up they are in their sport. So a lot of the athletes that I've, I've gotten to sort of switch this around, um, they're, they don't have to warm up as much. They're not as sore, right? So th or they're not as, I'll say pain, they're not as much pain because they're not just, just greasing one movement pattern over and over and over and over again. There's a great group called Project Lift that has adopted a lot of this stuff, and they're an Olympic weightlifting group. But if you look at their actual programming, they have a ton of these, like, triplanar movements, whereas traditionally an Olympic weightlifting person, like, everything that they're doing is, is going to be on the platform. You know, maybe they'll do some GHD stuff or, um, you know, some good mornings, but, like, it's basically just, you know, snatch, clean, squat, then sort of like RDLs or something and then go home. It's all sagittal plane. If you can get them out of that, the athlete's healthier and it does not compromise performance one bit. Yeah, I think you're I think you're in the perfect uh you're in the perfect market right now and who you're talking to because you work with a lot of functional fitness coaches, functional fitness athletes. Because I remember, gosh, in two thousand six, seven, eight, nine, you know, I rem I remember going back to like uh my collegiate strength conditioning days and we actually never trained in the sagittal plane. We only tested in the sagittal plane. So you walked in the weight room and it was like unilateral this, unilateral that. And then we're power cleaning a lot of weight and we're back squatting a lot of weight. Yeah. We're bench pressing a lot of weight. And then I get into the functional fitness world and it was like, it was all bench, squat, snatch, ch chest to bar, toe to bar. And now the stuff that you're talking about, like there might be functional fitness coaches or people listening and they're like writing notes down and it's super intriguing. And that sh the stuff that you're talking about right now is super sexy to functional fitness. But the stuff you're talking about has been around for fucking oh, ever. Yeah, right, I'm right? Not, yeah, no, I'm not. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm just saying it's, no, 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 it's, it's interesting that we're kind of like going back around where it's like, oh my gosh, a single leg RDL. Who would have thought? It's yeah. like. Yeah, it would have that that was thought about a well, hundred years my, ago, right? My, my favorite <laughs> thing that I've sort of watched, I've um, I gotten a fun conversation with James about this, like just the the difference in the culture shift in the this, the CrossFit community or, or the the mixed modal community or whatever. They're just completely different athletes now. Like before, you, you had to be nuts, right? And I was one of those people. Like you just, there's just something about it that you loved and you wanted to do. And then now it's sort of it's a little bit more mainstream, so more people are going into this. But what's funny is I came from the strength training world, and so I was literally like early, early on. This is you know 10 years ago. I was you know almost sort of like shamed for like really you do CrossFit stuff, and they were like shaming me. So you had these these strength coaches. And they would sort of look down on anyone that's doing CrossFit, right? And then you had CrossFit crapping, you know, on them. Like, oh, th these guys are dumb. Well, now what's funny is you have these, these gyms are now doing, you know, mixed modal training. They're doing Metcon-y things, right? They're lifting with elevated heart rate as opposed to just dividing the strength and the conditioning. What, what you guys do is strength and conditioning at the same time. Okay. Well, on the other side, it's hilarious. You see these CrossFit gyms and now they're doing, well, we need to do more individualized programming. I think you guys have said that once or twice, right? And then they're moving towards the strengthening world. Like I had been screaming at CrossFit gyms to use tempo for years. Like 
Dude, just you can in a Metcon, you can still do a tempo. Make them pause at the top of a kettlebell swing to like put the brakes on them a little bit so they can't just go at it with rectus of and just black out while they're going. So now you have everybody sort of meeting in the middle. Like the best strength training gyms in the world are using a, a combination of both things. So it's fun. Like you're saying, oh yeah, this all the stuff that you were doing when you were an athlete. It, now CrossFit gyms are getting into this. This mixed modal space is getting into this. Well, it's, it's the same thing. Like the strength training gyms are doing Metcotty things, you know, and the, the, the CrossFit gyms are sort of moving in this like individualized program model and moving back towards the center, which is, I guess that's um, just how everything just sort of evolves. Which is good, guys. Come in, come in, move back to the center. We'll help you get there. No, I, I, I mean, truth be, I think you guys put out great stuff and, and, and the concepts are there because there's so much power in doing that strength and conditioning at the same time, but you got to do it well. And I don't think that you can do it in this um, programming for what I call everyone and no one, right? They just sort of come in, all right, here's the program today. Well, half of them are, are, are injured or, you know, some of them can hinge well, some of them can't. And if you don't have any sort of specificity, um, what you end up doing is you actually will usually get fast, short-term improvement. So this is, I've, I've, hundreds of athletes I've seen do this. They come in, they get into the sport, their back squat goes up by 100 pounds in like six months. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. And then just flat lines. And it's because if you just crank up someone's volume and intensity, their body will respond to it. And let's say that they don't get injured. They will plateau because it's not specifically designed for them. So if you're just going to class and you don't have any specificity to it, you're going to struggle, and it's really after about 18 months, is when you just start to, like, flatten out. You're like, man, I'm still trying super hard, but I'm not able to actually get that, you know, to that next level, whether it's a squat or a clean or whatever. So your guys' model where you're actually having some specificity is kind of the way to ensure that you're getting – it would be slower, I think, because the volume's not crazy high, um, but you're going to ensure consistent improvement over a longer period of time, which is really the end goal. I feel like you like watched our stuff and came in with well, that. Because we, we talk about that all the time. It's like, hey, go and do this really intense fitness, and that program is going to beat our ideology for the first 6 to 12 months, but come back in 24, 36 months, and we believe that our ideology is going to 2x that because you're going to be on your way down if you came into that thing, you know, high volume, high intensity. Yeah, I mean, that, I, I can apply the same thing to the stabilizing strategy. If you, if we have two athletes sitting there, and you're like, hey, chest, you know, butt back, chest up, crank your posterior chain on, that guy or that athlete is going to be more stiff that day. Their spine is going to be way more stiff that day. I'm going to have to really work on the pressurizing, and it might take a little, little bit of time, but then come back to me in two years and see where that guy is. Or um, Mike Boyle is a, a great strength coach, um, and I had this cool conversation with him where I was saying, like, we're talking about a Jefferson curl, right, which is, like, really funny, crazy, silly, because you're just... Like George, it's like George's deadlift. Yeah, <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah. So you know, with that, they're just intentionally loading the spine into flexion, right? And I've had I have people all the time. They'll say like, "Oh, well, you know, I I use that in my office all the time, and it's great." And I was like, "Yeah, you train twenty year olds. They're made of rubber. Like, 
big deal. Like you, like when I was an athlete, I tr- I, w- I was a full time athlete until I was thirty. It wasn't until I was twenty seven or twenty eight that I was like, I gotta like be careful with some of these movements. In the beginning, just giddy up, let's go. Like I could just, I would hurt my back. The next day I would roll and I could just train. I could do a Jefferson curl. I could do you know a bad deadlift or whatever it was or butt wink in the squat. It didn't matter. So when you're talking to somebody and their sample is all twenty year olds or they only train them for four years, they're, they're actual, um, they can't see the consequences of the programming. So same thing you guys do. If you guys came in, you gave me six months, and I'm going to do super high volume, super high intensity stuff, and you guys are going to do your individualized stuff with, with more accurately uh, programmed volume and load, well, I, I'm going to kick the crap out of you in six months because, you know, they're going to get really, really good. But then even without an injury, they're going to flatline. And so you have to have that individually. The same thing with the bracing strategy. I will be able to get this athlete that, that pressurizes well and stabilizes correctly. They will last much longer. And I, I have to train. I know this because now I'm seeing people coming in and they've had these back injuries or whatever that they had when they were younger. And I'm having to retrain this. And then they can go back in. And in many cases, they actually squat more because now they're able to stabilize, achieve better stiffness in a way that's not beating up their tissues. So the same kind of uh, model applies to the stabilizing strategy as well. Cool. Do you have anything uh, you want to kind of shout out? Do you have oh, any courses coming up uh, uh, where no, people not, found you? Not many courses. <laughs> so um, www.athlete-enhancement.com is, is where I've got content and courses and stuff. So I teach courses to the medical professionals and then also to the performance professionals. Um, right now, I'm doing something that sort of ties in with this. Uh, I'm calling it Project Trunk Stability, which is um, every Monday, I release a new video on my YouTube channel. Uh, you, if you follow me at, um, at Athlete Enhancement on, on Instagram, you'll see it. But it's basically, it's a 20 to 60 second video of an exercise and multiple variations. And then beneath that is about an 800 word article about the anatomy and the mechanics or even the programming stuff, just depending on what I thought was the most pertinent, there's an article underneath that to, so that people, if they keep following along, they'll get a better understanding of trunk stability in the diaphragm or you know what the oblique slings are and just all these other um, accessory components to what we kind of talked about today. So if they want to follow that, that'd be great. I'll, uh, I'll follow it. I'll Absolutely. do it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And we'll uh, drop the links in the description as well so everyone can find them. Cool. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you.